Before we jump to our main interview, I wanted to wish good luck to our guest from episode 12, Nathan Stein, who flies back to the Caribbean tonight to take data on a hurricane-ravaged island. If you listened to episode 12, you know that Nathan uses drones equipped with scientific instruments to make elevation and spectral maps of an island devoid of human life in order to study microbial mats, giant carpets of microorganisms that perform all kinds of wild metabolisms. He's going in the wake of Hurricane Irma to study how the mats were affected by the hurricane, but another hurricane, Maria, is on its way. Today is Monday, September 18th. The way Nathan tells it, they plan to arrive at their island on Wednesday, take their measurements, and hightail it out of there before the Category 5 storm reaches their location on Thursday. It's a risky mission, but it's for the good of science, as they will be able to get an unprecedented data set on the geology and geobiology of an island between giant storms. As far as I know, this has never been done before and they are truly venturing into uncharted territory. Again, best of luck, Nathan, and stay safe. Now, let's open a new channel and speak to Drs. James Keen and Peter Gao. Thanks for tuning in to your favorite science and Star Trek podcast, Strange New Worlds. I want to begin by welcoming back Dr. Peter Gao, who we last saw in episode two, right? Yep, yep. So why don't you tell us where you are now? So right now I'm at NASA Ames Research Center in the Bay Area. I'm a postdoc there uh, working on simulations of planetary atmospheres. Very soon I'll be heading over to University of California, Berkeley to continue being a postdoc there and working on pretty much the same thing. So looking forward to that. Great. Go Bears. Go Bears! And also welcome aboard James Keene. Uh, James, you are also a freshly minted PhD, and you've just arrived at Caltech to do your postdoc. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you were before you arrived at Caltech? Sure. So yeah, I just finished my PhD at University of Arizona. Before that, I was at University of Maryland, and my training is as a geologist and astronomer. I have a degree in astronomy and geology, and just finished my PhD in planetary science, which is really the bridge between the two. And I am a theorist. I study primarily planetary geophysics of things in the solar system. So I study the moon, I study Mercury, Mars, Pluto, and a little bit of everything. So my research in particular focuses in on how planets spin, which seems like sort of a simple thing. I mean, everything spins. You, you sort of are used to the Earth spinning. But it can have a lot of interesting implications for planets and their geology. And in particular, how the spins change with time can leave a fingerprint on those planets. Well, we'll get into that in just a bit, but I see you've brought some really cool items to the table. So I'm, I'm looking at a Klingon disruptor and a Federation phaser and a communicator from the original series, as well as an assortment of Com badges or uh, insignia from various epochs of Star Trek, including the new things from Star Trek Discovery, which have this sort of um, broken asymmetric Delta shield, which is really awesome to see. Um, 
Mind if I put one on? <laughs> sure. <laughs> it should be noted he went for the command bag. <laughs> Thirst for power. Um, and you also have a, a Star Trek t-shirt on, I see. Yeah, I do. So I'm I'm actually originally from Iowa, so I, I have a special bond with Captain Kirk. So I'm, I'm wearing a shirt that has a quote from Star Trek Four, which is, no, I'm from Iowa, I only work in outer space. <laughs> yeah. Star Trek Four is full of all sorts of amazing quotes like that and, and that's a good one and very representative of who you are yeah. uh, speaking of Captain Kirk there is a question that I've been dying to ask you your middle name is Tuttle is that there right? Is. yeah so do, does anybody ever call you Captain James T. Keen? <laughs> um, very rarely I have been asked if my middle name is Tiberius <laughs> it is not um, as a kid I did very much enjoy the fact that my initials were the same as Captain Kirk Although I've never gone by Jim Jim Keen or Jim Tiberius Keen. Well, maybe you should go by James T. Like Jayla called Captain Kirk in Star Trek Beyond, James T. <laughs> James T. <laughs> maybe. I thought that was adorable. My catch on. Okay, well, I wanted to lead off our discussion today with the Voyager episode titled Blink of an Eye. Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. In case... You don't, the listeners. Um, This is an episode where Voyager is, of course, traversing the Delta Quadrant on its way home, and they encounter a planet where time passes more quickly on the surface of the planet than in orbit. That's one planet that never showed up on the multiple choice exam. And from orbit, Voyager gets to watch the rise and fall of countless civilizations over probably centuries or even millennia on this planet. And the people on the planet, they see Voyager appear basically when they're in the Stone Age, and they begin to worship it. Later on, technology develops. They invent telescopes. They look up at it. Voyager inspires all sorts of scientific revolutions, and even a space program as the people try to reach out to this night star to explore and see who's up there and communicate with it. And so I found this a very powerful episode um, in terms of story and in terms of um, the scientific ties that it has because it it tries to relate itself to some real-world science. Um, As you may be able to tell, this is a very peculiar planet. Its gravimetric readings are similar to that of a collapsed dwarf star. It also resembles a quasar in that it has a high rate of rotation, approximately 58 revolutions per minute. And... The reason why time passes faster on its surface than in outer space is because... This planet has a tachyon core. It's produced a subspace particle field which runs between the poles. Its core is made of tachyons. All right. (laughs) So let's talk about this this, uh, tachyon core for a little bit. Um, Because most planets don't have tachyon cores, right? What's a tachyon? A tachyon, I think, is uh, an imaginary particle in in physics that is supposed to go faster than the speed of light. We have no evidence that it actually exists. Um, This planet is very special and has a tachyon core, and I don't know how that works. (laughs) But how does a regular planet core work? What If I took a slice of the Earth or of Jupiter or any other planet, in the solar system, what should I expect to find that's not tachyons? Um, well, you'd run into a lot of different things depending on which planet you are on. For the Earth, you'd slice through about halfway to the center through mostly rock, and then you'd run into the Earth's core, which is made primarily out of molten iron and nickel, and so it'd be a big hunk of metal, very dense. I think this is an interesting comparison. That, so you have the Earth, 
the outer core is about the size of Mars. So it's you could almost think of it as its own planet within within the Earth. Mm. That is primarily liquid, and as you go down, you eventually hit the solid inner core, which is also made out of iron and nickel. And that is about the size of the Earth's moon, to give you another size comparison. And that solid inner core is formed as that liquid core is cooling and solid particles are freezing and falling out. And some other planets have the same interior structure like the Earth. Venus probably has the same general interior structure, uh, although we don't know if it has a liquid core or not. Mars has a core, the Moon has a core. And then once you get out into the outer solar system, things change a lot, and you run into gas giants, which are sort of outside of my usual domain. Peter, what's inside of a gas giant? Lots and lots of gas. <laughs> it's uh, a gassy object. It's a very gassy object. So, yes, gas giants have been hypothesized to form fairly differently. Uh, what ends up happening is, <clears throat> at the beginning, when the solar system was just forming, you would have ice and rocks essentially coming together, forming an initial solid object. Once this object has grown massive enough, and the typical range is around 10 Earth masses at 10 times the Earth's mass, it will start attracting a lot of gas from the surrounding nebula where the solar system initially formed. And if you do this early enough, such that there's plenty of gas swirling around, you can build up a large gas envelope. Jupiter, for example, has 300 Earth masses of hydrogen and helium gas. Uh, if you do this later in the game, you might end up with a smaller envelope, such as Uranus and Neptune, which I think only has about 10% of their mass made out of hydrogen and helium. Now, the really high pressures of this gas envelope means that the core may not uh, stay around. It might actually dissolve the core. This is an active area of research, and it will be hard to say that it's made out of, of ice and rock at that stage, since the high pressure would have presumably compressed it into just degenerate mass, a very dense material. And this is one of the objectives of the ongoing Juno mission to Jupiter, to determine whether or not Jupiter has a core, and in what state it is, if it's all concentrated in the middle, or it's sort of dissolved and strewn out throughout the interior parts of Jupiter. And so I guess we should try to find somebody who works on the Juno mission and ask them about that on a later podcast. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the really quick rotation rate of this planet in blink of an eye. 58 times per minute, which means it has a rotation period of a little more than one second, right? So one day on that planet lasts just a little bit more than one second. And this seems really fast to me because I live on Earth and it takes a day for a day to happen here. But is this really fast? I mean, I don't. What, how fast do other things rotate? This is very fast. Okay. <laughs> um, we know that there are solar system objects that rotate on the minute time scale. Some small asteroids that we've detected um, as they fly by the Earth, we can measure the rotation rates very precisely using radar. And we know that those spin minutes. I, I don't know of one off the top of my head that spins at once per second. The problem that you run into when you have really rapidly spinning things is they tend to fly apart. So those asteroids that spin very rapidly, the reason that we think that they can spin so rapidly is that they're monolithic blocks. So mm -hmm. they're, they're being held together by something more than gravity. There's electromagnetic bonds between the minerals and that keeps it held together. Planets, on the other hand, tend to be held together by their own gravity. So the Earth, for example, is a big ball 
um, held together by its own gravity. And that gravity sort of limits how fast things can spin. Asteroids that are are not monolithic tend to spin no faster than once every two hours. It just works out that for the densities that you expect within asteroids and planets, that you run into this sort of wall at about two hours where if it's spinning any faster than that, then stuff will fly off the surface. Asteroids are, are an interesting bunch because they, they get spun up by the sun and all sorts of different processes. Most planets spin a lot slower than that. Hmm. The Earth obviously spins once every 24 hours. Mars is around the same time. Mercury and Venus tend to have slower periods. The gas giants spin around once every 10 hours, more or less. And then some of the, the satellites, the moons, can also spin slow. There it's controlled by interactions between those moons and the planets. They tend to slow down through tides. There are astronomical objects that, that do spin that fast, that spin on the periods of seconds. And those are pulsars or other sort of stellar remnants. When the star dies, it leaves behind its core, in some cases, for, for really large stars. And we can measure the speeds at which those objects are spinning. And pulsars are one example where they spin exceptionally fast. So maybe, I don't know if pulsars are also made out of tachyons. <laughs> maybe life somehow evolved on the surface of a pulsar. I, I would be very surprised about that. Mm -hmm. they would, these people would be squished uh, very flat because yeah. of the gravity. But most planetary situations, a one second rotation rate is, is pretty, that's out there for, for imagining a habitable M-class world to form. So how can pulsars spin so fast? That's a good question. And you might want to ask a stellar physicist. <laughs> pulsars are the remnants of really large stars. And as those stars are in their death throes, they often go through really catastrophic eruptions, supernova, and which are effectively just giant explosions. And so I could easily imagine that in that process, you're part, you could impart a lot of rotational kinetic energy into the, the core. Also, as the thing is exploding, as the star is exploding, the inner parts of the star are actually also collapsing. And so as things collapse through conservation of angular momentum, they tend to speed up. So whether you realize it or not, you're familiar with this. If you ever watch someone in the Olympics ice skating, as they start to spin and they pull in their arms, they speed up, that can happen. And so the formation process of pulsars and other stellar remnants is very complicated. You run into all sorts of funky effects with like relativity and magnetic fields and really wacky things. So I don't know if it's 100% understood how you get things spinning that fast. But they can because they're so massive and their gravity can support that spinning. If you tried to spin up the Earth, we would just fly apart, yes. right? Yeah, so the reason a pulsar can spin that fast, yes, is it has enough gravity to keep to counterbalance that centrifugal force from ripping it apart. So a pulsar, a typical pulsar is maybe only like 10 kilometers across. It's like the size of a city, but it has the mass of a star. So the surface gravity is immense. It's only really beaten by like a black hole in terms of its gravity. Incredible. So I guess we can attribute the fast rotation rate of this planet in the Lake of Nye to the magical tachyons, which also influence the way that time passes on the surface of that planet. Who knows how they work? So, James, I know that as a rotational dynamicist, you study not only 
the speed at which things rotate, but also how the rotation of certain bodies changes with time as they evolve throughout the solar system's history. So let's talk about Pluto, because everybody loves Pluto, right? Yes. Or almost everybody. Everyone's favorite sort of planet. (laughs) So James, I know you like to say that Pluto followed its heart. What does that mean? Yeah, so Pluto, I mean, we we knew, knew actually a lot about Pluto before the New Horizons mission flew past Pluto about two years ago. But once we got to Pluto with a spacecraft, we could start to see the surface of Pluto, start to actually see the geology of Pluto. And one of the most prominent features on Pluto was its heart. This bright region on the encounter hemisphere, it's currently informally known as Tombaugh Regio, is the big heart of Pluto. And the western edge of that is this region called Sputnik Planitia. Who's, who's Tombaugh? Tombaugh is this famous astronomer who discovered Pluto at the Lowell Observatory in around 1930 or so. And the New Horizons team decided to name this this feature, the largest, most obvious feature uh, that they saw on approach after this astronomer. And within Tombaugh Regio, which is this bright region, a large portion of it is covered up by this large glacier of nitrogen ice. That glacier is called Sputnik Planitia. Sputnik comes from, it was named for the, the first spacecraft that humans sent into Earth orbit. A lot of the geologic features on Pluto are named after famous explorers, famous missions, famous astronomers. And what was immediately interesting, even before the New Horizons spacecraft had its closest approach, was that this heart of Pluto is on a special spot on Pluto. So Pluto is, in many ways, it's a binary planet. It it itself is about the size of our moon, but it also has a very large moon of its own, Charon, which is about half its size. It's so large, in fact, that Charon doesn't actually orbit Pluto. They both orbit a common center of mass that is somewhere between Pluto and Charon. It's actually above the surface of Pluto. Mm. So Pluto and Charon, they're both tidally locked to each other, just like the moon is tidally locked to the Earth. So the moon, our own moon, Earth's moon, capital M, rotates once per every orbit. So it always shows the same side towards the Earth. Charon does the same to Pluto. It's tidally locked, so it always shows the same sides towards Pluto. But Pluto is also tidally locked towards Charon. It always shows the same sides towards Charon. Eventually, the Earth and the Moon will reach this state as well in a few billion years uh, as tides start to suck out energy from the Earth's spin. So that means that you can define sort of a geometry in the system. There's a point on Pluto that's directly beneath Charon that if you were standing at, if you look straight up, you would see Sharon, and it would be stuck in the sky, hanging above you, and it would never really move from that point. There's also a point on the opposite side of Pluto, the exact diametric opposite side, where you would never see Sharon. It would actually be directly beneath your feet, and if you could drill a hole through Pluto and look down that hole, you would see Sharon on the other side. That's the anti-Sharon point on Pluto. The heart of Pluto Tombaugh Regio, and in particular this big glacier, happens to be at that point, the Mm -hmm. anti-Sharon point on Pluto. So stated more succinctly, the heart of Pluto is on the opposite side of Pluto from Sharon. It's at the anti-Sharon point. So that is interesting. You can work out sort of the probability of that alignment happening by chance, and it's pretty low. So that's sort of suspicious, and you try to think of what can cause that. 
So whenever you see a large feature align with one of these special axes, um, we call these principal axes on a planet, say the, the tidal axis, like if you were to draw a line through Pluto, it would go right through to the center of Charon. Mm -hmm. Whenever you see a large feature align with one of these principal axes, an easy explanation for, for that is this process that we call true polar wander. So what is true polar wander for Pluto? So imagine Pluto is a giant cue ball in space, perfectly spherical planet, dwarf planet, sorry. Um, <laughs> so it's completely smooth, spherical object. And you start building this giant glacier on it. Sputnik Planitia, by the way, is about a thousand kilometers across. It's, it's large and it's several kilometers thick. It's a big, thick, heavy deposit. You're building that on Pluto. That's effectively unbalancing Pluto. The tides from Charon start to tug on that. And in order to keep Pluto in a nice, happy, low energy state, it's gonna to try to tug that large mass anomaly into the most optimal location, which in this case, since it's a mass excess, happens to be on the equator, on the tidal axis. It could have gone to the, the sub-Sharon point, the point closest to Sharon on Pluto, or the anti-Sharon point, which is where we see it today. There's no preference either way, but if you want to put a ton of extra mass on Pluto, that's where it's going to go, either one of those points. So that provides a natural explanation for how you can get this big giant glacier in one particular spot on Pluto. And that's great, sure, it's some theoretical idea. And us astronomers love to talk about theoretical ideas all the time, but we always want proof of those ideas. And it turns out that the, the proof in this case for Pluto is actually in the faults on, on Pluto, the, the tectonics on Pluto. Mm. So you have this big giant glacier and around that glacier are these faults, these, uh, think of them like the San Andreas faults of Pluto, and they have a particular geometry. So as Pluto reoriented, from loading of ice into this particular part of Pluto that bends Pluto's crust, that flexes it, eventually the crust will break. And the pattern of those breaks, it tells you something about that reorientation process. And it turns out that we can make theoretical predictions for what those tectonic patterns should be and they match. And this actually, I hadn't really thought about this till today, this ties into that Voyager episode, Blink of the Eye, nice. because <laughs> The problem for those planet, those planet dwellers with their, other than their tachyon core, is that Voyager is causing earthquakes. It looks like the ship's been caught in an eddy of some kind. It's worse than that. Voyager seems to have become the planet's third pole. The imbalances affecting the outer crust. I've picked up indications of high-frequency seismic activity. Caused by our presence? Possibly. Those earthquakes are likely happening along faults. Now, this is a little bit different because Voyager is this tiny little spacecraft perturbing this planet. I'm not sure quite how that's happening, but it's, it's you could almost, if, if you believe that this tachyon core planet can be reoriented or perturbed by Voyager, this tiny 200 meter long spacecraft, then you can imagine that this is similar, that it's torquing this rapidly spinning planet, building up stresses in the crust, and that's causing earthquakes. The planet itself may not be reorienting or reorienting much, but this interconnection between how planets spin, how their crusts flex and break, is what I find particularly interesting in this little field of rotational dynamics that I do. So let me see if I can recap what happened. So once upon a time, Pluto was spinning 
some completely different way from the way it's spinning today. Yeah. And somehow a large glacier built up on one particular point of Pluto and through the gravitational dance that Pluto plays with its sister dwarf planet Charon, it reoriented its spin such that the large heart-shaped glacier is now pointing exactly opposite, exactly away from where Sharon is at all yes. times. And that process happened very slowly. How long did it take? That's a good question. These processes, these reorientation processes, typically take millions of years or longer. For the particular case of Pluto, it's probably on the order of tens of millions of years. It depends on things like the interior structure of Pluto. How easily can Pluto lose energy through tides? But it also depends on how quickly you build up this glacier. Was it an overnight thing? Did the glacier form over billions of years? We don't quite know. We also don't know exactly how old this glacier is. We know that it's currently active today because there's no impact craters on the surface of the glacier, even though the surrounding trains are covered in, in craters. But that just may mean it's active today. It doesn't necessarily mean it formed today. So this process for Pluto probably took millions of years. One other thing to mention is, so talking a lot about Pluto, this process of true polar wander happens throughout the solar system. This is not something that's only happening on Pluto. A good example of this is actually on Mars. Mars has this, these giant volcanoes on its surface. Olympus Mons is the largest volcanic mountain edifice in the solar system. It happens to be right on the, or very close to the equator of Mars. And so an idea for Mars is that you build up this big giant volcano. It acts very much like this giant glacier on Pluto. It unbalances Mars and it reorients towards the equator in order to minimize energy. There are a bunch of other examples throughout the solar system. And true polar wonder is also inferred for the Earth through investigations of the, the relative motions of tectonic plates and the, the orientations of those plates with respect to hot spots within the mantle and magnetic field grains, a bunch of different pieces of evidence. We know that the crust of the Earth has actually reoriented over millions of years. That concludes episode 13 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed our discussion with Drs. James Keane and Peter Gao about planetary rotation, Pluto, and true polar wander. We are now under a week away from the launch of Star Trek Discovery, and it is my hope to publish the second half of our discussion with James and Peter before then. We'll get to know their inner Trekkies a little more, talk about the intersection of science and art, and give our hopes for the new Star Trek TV show next time on Strange New Worlds. See you out there.